Alrighty. Well, let's see what the Lord has to say. We're going to continue to look at the life and ministry of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. So we'll begin reading in Mark 7, 24, and it said, And from thence he arose and went into the borders of Tyre and Sidon, and entered into a house, and would have no man know it, but he could not be hid. For a certain woman whose young daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him, and came and fell at his feet. And the woman was a Greek, a Syrophoenician by nation, and she besought him that he would cast forth the devil out of her daughter. But Jesus said unto her, Let the children first be filled, for it is not meet to take the children's bread and cast it unto the dogs. And she answered and said unto him, Yes, Lord, yet the dogs under the table eat of the children's crumbs. And he said unto her, For this saying, Go thy way, the devil is gone out of thy daughter. And when she was come to her house, she found the devil gone out and her daughter laid upon the bed, healed. So now if you would turn to, to Matthew 15, I want to read Matthew's account because he has some things in there that aren't in Mark's that we'll spend some time on. In fact, if you want to just if you have a piece of paper or whatever, uh, stick something in Mark's because we'll be looking at Matthew for the most part in the first half of what we're talking about tonight. So beginning in verse 21 in Matthew 15, we read, And then Jesus went thence and departed into the coast of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a woman of Canaan came out of the same coast and cried unto him, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, thou son of David. My daughter is grievously vexed with a devil. But he answered her not a word. And his disciples came and besought him, saying, Send her away, for she cries after us. But he answered and said, I am not sent but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And then she came and she worshipped him, saying, Lord, help me. But he answered and said, It is not meat to take the children's bread and to cast it to dogs. And she said, Truth, Lord. Yet the dogs eat of the crumbs which fall from their master's table. And then Jesus answered and said unto her, O woman, great is thy faith. Be it unto thee even as thou wilt. And her daughter was made whole from that very hour. And Heavenly Father, let's just ask that you'll tonight just magnify and glorify your Son, Jesus Christ, in what we preach, what we have to say, what we see from your Word, Lord, that He would just become more real and more of a help, and just that our faith will, faith will be increased with what we hear and what we read in your Word about our Lord Jesus. And I just ask that He be magnified tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So the title of the sermon tonight is The Humility of Faith. The Humility of Faith. And there is some humility to faith. We'll see, right? So let's start off, I want to say, you know, how many times have you known someone or you feel like you know somebody really well and somebody comes along and they tell you something about that person that is like totally out of character from the way you know them. And you're like, you hear that and you're like, are you sure? that they did this or that. Are you sure they did? I know them pretty well. And I could not imagine them doing that. Have you ever had that happen? I've had that happen a few times. And that's what we have here on the surface of this story about the Syrophoenician woman. You know, we have this picture of Jesus. I hope you do, based on what we've been studying in Mark. And as always, he's just somebody that he's ready to help the needy comes full of compassion, and he generally seems to be pretty friendly. You know, that's, that's the impression you get about him. So, you know, we think back, we have the leper that comes to him in chapter 1. He's an outcast from society. 
Basically, he would be considered an untouchable. Yet we read, it says, Jesus was moved with compassion. When he sees this need, moved with compassion in his bowels, he put forth his hand and touched him. And it says, immediately the leprosy departed from him and he was cleansed. And on and on we see the compassion and care. That's the picture we get of Jesus. You know, you have the man sick of palsy. He heals him. The man with the withered hand, the gathering demoniac, Jairus. The multitudes had said that they had no shepherd or no food. Jesus had compassion on all of them. That's the picture we get, isn't it? That we can trust him in that way. And yet here... We just read we have a woman with a desperate need, and the way Jesus handles her seems to be out of character, doesn't it? So when you read your story and you read the way he's treating her, especially in Matthew, you have to ask yourself, what are you doing, Jesus? That's not typically the way you act. You know, aren't you just being a little bit rude to her? Just ignoring her or whatever? And I mean, it's like when I read 1 Corinthians 13, it says that love does not behave itself unseemly, or the word could be rude. Love won't act that way, but yet he seems to be doing that very thing, doesn't he? So, look, you know, when someone's not talking to you, don't you guys consider that rude? I mean, I do, and I'm, you're a little bit offended. You're talking to somebody, trying to get, and they just ignore you? You're like, man, what's the deal with this guy? <laughs> what I do to offend you? You're not going to even talk to me. But I don't think Jesus was really being rude to this woman. I don't think he was a rude man. And that'll be clear as we go on in this story. So in verse 24, well, you can pick it up in verse 21 of Matthew or verse 24 in Mark, either one. What's happened is he's had that encounter that we looked at last time with the scribes and the Pharisees. And so he's gone a long way away from where he was on the Sea of Galilee. Galilee. He spent almost his whole ministry around the Sea of Galilee amongst the Jews, except for the very brief time when he dealt with the gathering demoniac. He was in Gentile territory. But for the majority of Jesus's ministry, it was all done in Israel amongst the Jewish people. And you think about it. That's funny. He's in this little backwater area of the world, and he's got the good news for the world. Isn't that something? I mean, you would think he would go to Rome or Athens or one of the huge metropolitan cities to get his message out, and yet he doesn't. And so right after he's had this confrontation with the scribes and Pharisees, he goes 25 miles northwest to the coast, and he's up into what is now modern Lebanon. If you can picture that in your mind. So he is right in the heart of pagan Gentile territory. That's where he's at. He goes to Tyre and Sidon. And that's a place no Jew would very rarely go to. They would never hardly go to an area like that. Highly Gentile. It was considered unclean. Tyre is where Jezebel came from. Her and all her false prophets and Baalism. So it would have been considered an area that was totally unclean and full of unclean Gentiles. No one would go there. So why would Jesus go there? Why would he go there? You know why? Because he probably wanted to go somewhere that he could get away from the Pharisees, he could get away from the crowd, somewhere he could go and be unnoticed and give him some time to privately teach his disciples. Because everywhere he's going around Galilee and all Israel, the crowds are just mobbing him, following him. He's got the Pharisees and the scribes are just breathing down his neck. So he's wanting to get that much-needed rest that he was never able to get, that he had to feed the multitudes, the 5,000s, the last time he tried to get some rest. 
And that's what's going on. The problem is it's not going to happen. You know, you're in Matthew if you're doing what I said. But if you go back to Mark, I'm sorry, I'm, we'll be flipping back and forth, I guess. But in Mark uh, 24 and 25, it says, And from thence he arose, went into the borders of Tyre and Sidon. He goes into a house, and he would have no man know it. He's trying to get alone. But it says, but... At the end of verse 24, he could not be hid for a certain woman whose young daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell at his feet. Now, how was he recognized? How would he be recognized in this Gentile territory? Well, if you would, just look back a few chapters in Mark and we can figure that out. So here's what happened back in chapter 3 of Mark chapter 3, verses 7 to 11. And it says in Mark 3, 7, But Jesus withdrew himself with his disciples to the sea, and a great multitude from Galilee followed him, and from Judea, and from Jerusalem, and from Idumea, and from beyond Jordan. And look what it says there in verse 8, And they about Tyre and Sidon, a great multitude, when they had heard what great things he did, they came unto him. So some people from that region, the Gentiles, when they heard about it, they're coming. And look what it goes on to say. He spake to his disciples that a small ship should wait on him because of the multitude, lest they should throng him. Verse 10, for he healed many, insomuch that they pressed upon him for to touch him, and as many as had plagues. And unclean spirits, verse 11, when they saw him, now take note of that, unclean spirits. When they saw him, they fell down before him and cried, saying, Thou art the Son of God. And obviously those people would have been delivered. So these people that were there in Mark 3 from Tyre and Sidon, many of them would have been healed and delivered of these unclean spirits. And they'd have gone back with reports of what had happened. And some of them, when he comes back into that area, apparently they recognized him. Because he couldn't be hidden. They saw him somehow. He's in the area. However all that works. See him with his disciples. Oh, we know that guy. That's that guy. Right? So the nearest Syrophoenician woman, she hears about him. And she comes looking for deliverance from her daughter. Because probably one of her neighbors, you know, they said, hey, that prophet from Galilee's come to town. You know, you know, the guy that restored those limbs and those people we had around here that were severely afflicted with illness. And that crazy Anthony. Remember old crazy Anthony? He was crazy. He had that unclean spirit. Well, remember, he cried out, and he got delivered. And the lady next door is telling the Syrophoenician woman, you know what? Crazy Anthony's as normal as my Frank. Now, if you want to call him normal, she'd say. But he acts like he's not crazy anymore, right? So she says, I'm sure. She's telling her, I'm sure she could help your little Priscilla. I don't know what the girl's name was. I'm making something up. So I'm sure she could help your Priscilla. He delivered. She, they're telling her everybody that came and guess what he's just staying a few blocks from your house he'd be easy to find that's probably what happened she hears about it hears about what all he's done she knows people he's delivered she's got faith faith comes by hearing a word and that's what she did she heard a word about this man so mark is usually when he gives a story he usually gives the fuller account is what you'll find even though it's a shorter gospel. But he usually gives the fuller account of whatever story he's telling. But in this case, Matthew gives details that aren't found in Mark. Matthew does that are not found in Mark that are significant. Because Mark just goes to the woman coming and bowing directly at his feet. And Matthew gives us some of the in-between discussions at what takes place. So in Matthew's account, the woman's just 
She doesn't just quietly ask Jesus to help her or to see him. No, it says she is crying out. That means the word is a loud cry. She is crying out for mercy and she's appealing to Jesus as the Messiah. She says, thou son of David, have mercy on me. And he's just ignoring her. I mean, I don't know what he's doing, but it says he answered her not a word. And think how frustrating that probably was to her. <laughs> she just, he's just looking ahead, not answering her, ignoring her. And I guarantee you her crying became louder and louder in her desperation. It's just like a baby. It'll start whimpering and everybody's had a kid. They know how it goes. And all of a sudden it just keeps getting amped up and you think they were literally being killed. And then as soon as you pick them up, it's all over. Because there really wasn't anything wrong with them. That's just the way it goes. But it's getting on the disciples' nerves, is what we read. And they're just like, we can't handle this woman anymore. Would you please send her away? And the implication is just give her what she wants and just get rid of her. Send her away. She keeps crying after us. And so finally, Jesus says something. He says, I'm not sent unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But, you know, now he's speaking to her, but I would hardly call that words of encouragement. Would you? Not hardly, right? And she then, she just begs for help. Falls at his feet and begs for help. And he tops all this off by calling her and her daughter dogs, is what he does. So what's up with all of this? What lessons can we learn from this encounter with Jesus and this woman about faith? And I think there's three things we can learn out of this account. And the first thing is that faith is many times born of desperation. Many times. The second thing we'll see is Jesus is the only answer. The third thing we'll see is we see the humility of faith. And thus the title of our message. It's a big part of this story. So the first thing we see is that faith is many times born of desperation. It says that this woman's daughter was severely oppressed by an unclean spirit. You look in verse 22, you should be over in Matthew. If you look in verse 22, look what it says. It says, Behold, a woman of Canaan came out of the same coast, and she cried unto him, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, thou son of David. And at the end, she tells why my daughter is grievously vexed with a devil. Another translation says, Cruelly, demon possessed. So you get the picture that whatever was happening, it doesn't tell us exactly what was going on here, but it was probably very difficult to watch. And especially as a mother, I would say, or as a father. Anytime I've seen my children going through something, it's very hard to watch your children of all people to really be going through something, any type of illness. But you get the picture with this, that it's frequent, that it's violent, and it's tormenting. Whatever this unclean spirit's doing to her daughter because it has made this woman desperate. And so she's from a highly pagan area. And you go over to those places. We've been over there, Lisa and I, to Greece and all those places and Israel. They got pagan temples everywhere. And they're pretty elaborate, some of them. And they would pay money and go to these priests and have all this stuff done. And those people really had faith in that. And at times things would happen. I'm sure she'd done all of those things. Been to the pagan priest, been to the pagan temple, been to the pagan healing gods. That's what they would have, specific healing gods. Have the priest say words over her daughter, and none of it was working. 
for her, all to no avail. And now she's at the point, this has gone on long enough, she is desperate and she's crying out to the only one that she knows is getting results. The Lord Jesus Christ, because the anointing of God, the power of the Holy Spirit is on him. So we've already seen, I'm talking desperate situations. And we've only gone through chapter 7, haven't even finished that in Mark. And we've seen a lot of instances in Mark where an extreme case has caused that desperation. You know, we talked about the leper already. He's desperate. And it says he came to Jesus beseeching him. That's a common term that's used. Begging is what it means. Came to him beseeching him, kneeling down to him. That's another thing people are doing in their desperation coming up and kneeling in front of him, begging him for help. And he says, if you will, begging him, you can make me clean. Because he's saying, only you can make me clean. No one else can make me clean. I know you can, oh, just if you're willing to do it. And Jesus forever settled God's willingness to heal us, didn't he? He said, I will put forth his hand. Settled it right there. That's his will. If we ask anything according to his will and we're his children, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, we know that we have already have the petition we desired. We may be waiting for that power to surge through our body and manifest it, but it's going to happen. If we ask according to his will, 1 John 5, we can hold on to that, can't we? And what about Jairus, the ruler of the synagogue? You got another end of the spectrum here. This is a high class guy, ruler of the synagogue. But here again, it's desperate. His only daughter that he loves, your only child. He loves her. She's dying. And again, it says that he fell at his feet and besought him greatly, it says. Begged him earnestly. He's pleading, besought him greatly. It's this desperation. Don't you get that sense of it when you read that? That's what's going on there. Hear about it? The woman with the issue of blood. She's not supposed to be around people. The law said that. She's going to be in a hard place here. Instead, she's willing to violate all that, get in trouble with the community, and she's pushing her way through this crowd because she is desperate. Just, oh, if I can just touch the hem of his garment. I've been all those, I've been to the physician's. Spent all I have. I'm broke now. I have nowhere else to turn. And I know he can do it for me, and he will. She just touched the hem of his garment. Jesus was her only hope. So if you would, put something in Matthew 15 and turn to 2 Kings. I want to look at another desperate situation. 2 Kings chapter 4. The Shumanite woman with Elisha. So we're in... 2 Kings 4, and that Shumanite woman had given Elisha a room to stay in, bread to eat every time he passed by. And Elisha's like, man, you have been so nice to me. I want to bless you somehow. And he asked his servant, Gehazi, well, what can we do for this woman? And Gehazi says, well, she doesn't have any kids, and her husband's getting real old. I don't know how much longer he's going to be in business to give her kids. And Elisha says, all right, we'll help her out. So we have 2 Kings 4, beginning in verse 16. And this is what he tells her. He calls, they call her, and he said in verse 16, he said, about this season, according to the time of life, you'll embrace a son. And she said, oh, my Lord, you man of God, don't lie to me. Don't lie to your handmaid. But, verse 17, the woman conceived and bare a son at the season that Elisha had said unto her, according to the time of life. 
And when the child was grown, it fell on a day that he went out to his father to the reapers. And he said unto his father, My head, my head. And he said to a lad, Carry him to his mother. And when he had taken him and brought him to his mother, he sat on her knees till noon. And right in her knees, that boy that the prophet had promised her died. And she went up and laid him on the bed of the man of God and shut the door upon him and went out. And she called unto her husband and said, Send me, I pray thee, one of the young men and one of the asses, that I may run to the man of God and come again. And he said, Well, why are you going to go to him today? It's not a new moon or a Sabbath. And she said, Well, this is her faith speaking. It shall be well. And she saddled an ass and said to her servant, hey, Here's her desperation right here. Drive and go forward and slack not thy riding for me, except I bid thee. She's like, you get there as quick as you can, because we got a desperate situation here. So unless I tell you to slow up, you don't worry about me. You see me bumping around. Don't worry about it. Just keep going, man. Verse 25. So she went and came unto the man of God to Mount Carmel. And it came to pass when the man of God saw her afar off, he said to Gehazi, his servant, behold, yonder's that yonder. That's a Kentucky word. Yonder's that Shumanite. Run now, I pray thee, to meet her and say unto her, Is it well? Is it well with your husband? Is it well with your child? And she tells Gehazi, It is well. But when she came to the man of God to the hill, buddy, she's desperate. Look what she does. She grabs him by his feet. And Gehazi came near to thrust her away. because It's like she's probably being violent about it, so to speak. And the man of God said, Let her alone, because I can tell she's troubled. Her soul is vexed within her. And the Lord's hid it from me and hasn't told me. And she said, did I desire a son of my Lord? Did I not say, don't deceive me? And he said it unto Gehazi, gird up thy loins and take my staff in thy hand and go thy way. If you meet any man, salute him not. And if any salute thee, answer him not again and lay my staff upon the face of the child. And the mother of the child says, as the Lord lives and as thy soul lives, I don't care what Gehazi does. I'm not leaving you, Elisha. And he arose and followed her. And Gehazi passed on before them and laid the staff upon the face of the child, but there was neither voice nor hearing. Wherefore, he went again to meet him and told him and said, Nothing's happened, Elisha. I did what you said. The child is not awake. And when Elisha was come into the house, behold, the child was dead and laid upon his bed. He went in, therefore, and shut the door upon them too and prayed unto the Lord. And he went up and lay upon the child, put his mouth upon his mouth, his eyes upon his eyes, his hands upon his hands, and stretched himself upon the child. And the flesh of the child waxed warm. And then he returned and walked in the house to and fro, went up and stretched himself upon him. And the child sneezed seven times, and the child opened his eyes. And he called Gehazi and said, Call this Shumanite. So he called her, and when she was come unto him, he said, Take up thy son. And she went in and fell at his feet and bowed herself to the ground and took up her son and went out. She was desperate, wasn't she? And she wasn't taking no for an answer either, was she? And her faith said it will be well. But she wasn't letting go of that prophet, the one that had given her that child. She's got a hold of his feet and she says, I'm not leaving you. She got to him as quick as she could. And she said, you've got what I need. And I'm not letting go of you. I'm not departing from you until it happens. And that's what we have to be like sometimes, isn't it? Many times, God will cause desperate situations to drive us to seek his face. And we got to see his hand in that when it happens. You know, sometimes we got a loved one 
that we see is drifting further and further away into trouble. And you've tried reasoning, pleading, restricting, and everything's failed. And in your desperation, that's when you're like, none of this other's working. Isn't it that way sometimes? I've got to grab hold of the feet of Jesus, grab hold of the horns of the altar. And Lord, I'm not leaving until something changes. Isn't that what we have here? That desperation. I'm not going away. It's repeatedly through the New Testament. And bring it to the Lord in constant intercession. You got something you want? Lord, I'm making a big deal about this. You've promised this to me. I need this now. Whatever it is, I'm not going away. And so what the principle here is, we've got to be like that widow we talked about not that long ago in Luke 18. It said she troubled the judge continually gave him no rest. And that's what this Syrophoenician woman is doing. She's desperate. She's troubling Jesus. And so the Lord said at the beginning of that parable in Luke 18, he said, that parable I'm getting ready to tell you, the reason I'm telling you this parable is so that you will always pray. It's what you ought to do and never to give up. And that's the cases we're seeing example after example, Old and New Testament, that people that say, I'm desperate, you have what I need, I'm not leaving until you get it, give it to me, and they'll get it. That's what God does. It will be the fuel, that desperation, it will be the fuel of that constant prayer. When something really makes a big deal to you, whatever it is, you'll get it. So when it's trouble at work, at home, with our spouses, that's where we have trouble, isn't it? Been here many times. That's where it's at. So what do we try to do when all that happens? Our natural inclination is we try to think and scheme our way through these problems, how to deal with stuff. Isn't that typically what we'll do, first of all? So many times we do that, right? And we miss God's way a lot of times of dealing with our troubles. And that was the lesson that the greatest schemer of all time had to learn. Who do you think that is? Jacob. That was his name. He schemed to get the birthright, schemed to get the blessing, schemed to get Laban's livestock. But he was forever delivered of all his scheming. You know when that happened? When he's faced with a life or death desperate situation. Esau's coming and Esau's going to kill him. And there's no scheming his way out of it. And he knows it and he realizes it. So in desperation, what does he do? He sends everybody across the river and he gets alone with God because he's that desperate. This is what I got to do. <laughs> wrestled, it says. He wrestled with that angel. Wrestled with an angel. You know, my daughter came home yesterday. She goes, Dad, I've never seen anything. Never seen this before. She's going to U of L, working out. She goes, There's these guys in there. They're wrestling just for the fun of it. She goes, It just looked funny. She's like, You ever do that? I'm like, Well, yeah, we used to do it in grade school. We'd wrestle or whatever. But, you know, I was thinking back, yeah, when you wrestle, one guy makes a move, and then you're, in your head you're trying to think, how can I counter that move? And it's just like that back and forth, right? You're not wanting to let go, not wanting to let him get an advantage. And when Jacob wrestled with that pre-incarnate Christ, which is who that angel was, it was the pre-incarnate Christ. He's wrestling with him. He says, I'm not letting you go. I'll get you in whatever stranglehold I need to, but you're not getting away from me. I need your help. However that went. He was desperate, and the Lord finally says to him, would you let me go for the day breaks? And Jacob is like, I will not let you go. I don't care what time of day it is. 
until you bless me. That's what he told him, until you bless me. And I'll tell you how desperate he was. When you read the verse before the Lord tells him to let him go, it said the angel, while they're wrestling, puts his thigh out of joint. And that had to hurt. And he's like, you do to me whatever you want to. You pull all my teeth out. Pull my ears, bite my ears like Mike Tyson. I'm not letting you go. Because I am that desperate. I need help. Amen. That's right. And he had to be in pain, his leg. I mean, it's, I can't ever seen that video of Tim Tebow with a broken leg playing in that championship high school game. Like, that guy is nuts. I wouldn't do it for a football game, but that's about what you have here with Jacob wrestling. He's forever limping. But yet, he prevailed. So Jesus wouldn't answer that woman, would he? He was rude with her. She kept crying out. And he's like, hey, I'm not sent to your kind. I'm not sent to Gentiles. I'm sent to Israel. And it says she begged for help. He says, ah, you're a dog. He's wrestling with her, making counter moves. And she's not letting go. He said, would you just let me go? I'm not sent to you. And all. She goes, oh, no, I'm not letting you go. You say whatever you want to about me because I'm desperate. I got a daughter that's in deep trouble. So the question is, where are we that desperate with the Lord? I mean, man, even people that don't have the Holy Spirit in here, when you read back, guys like John G. Lake and those guys, they were desperate. Their souls were thirsty. They pressed in and sought until they got the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It was a big deal. And bam, when they got it, boy, their lives were never the same. Desperate, but you got to be desperate and thirsty. That's the way it is. You got to be like that bulldog with a bone. And so that's the first thing I see here. Mark chapter 7 and Matthew 15 is desperation many times is the motivation for faith. And the second thing I want to look at is Jesus is the only answer. And he is. He really is. Now there's other answers, but he's the only answer that counts. He's the only answer that's sure. So this woman, just by what all it describes her at, she was probably a well-to-do Greek Gentile. And so she would have had money. She would have taken her daughter, more than likely, it doesn't say, but she more than likely would have taken her to these pagan priests and magicians to try to get her healed. She would have prayed and used her money to those idols of healing. Like I said, they're in every pagan culture at that time, and none of it worked. But she's hearing reports that God in Israel, the Spirit of God is moving there through this man, this man, Jesus. And somehow along the line through getting these reports, she's got a revelation that he's no ordinary man. He's the Messiah. She calls him. She says, oh, Lord, thou son of David. That was the designation. She knew he was the coming Messiah that had come. Somehow she knew that. And she says, yeah, he's like telling her, yeah, you're correct in calling me the Messiah. But what you don't understand is my mission as the Messiah is not to you Gentiles yet. My mission is to the lost sheep in the house of Israel. That's my mission. When he tells her that, though, she gives a very simple answer. Are, are you guys in Matthew 15? Look at Matthew 15. Look at the answer when he says that to her. Verse 24, he answered and says, I am not sent but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And when he said that, she apparently wasn't right by him. She must have been following wherever, crying out. But then she comes up to him, verse 25, and worshiped him. And what does she say to him then? She says a simple and profound 
three words, Lord, help me. She's saying, I've tried all the gods I know, and you are the only true God that can help me. She's saying, Lord, please help me. Have you ever said that? Just as simple as that. God, Jesus, please help me. I need that. It's as simple as it gets, isn't it? But that's what she's saying. I've tried everything else. You're saying you're not sent to me. I'm just saying, God, on her knees in front of me, just please help me, Lord. I know who you are. You can help me. Nowhere else for me to turn. You're the only answer. And that's the way it is with our God. That's the way God wants us to be. So if you would turn back to Isaiah 40. I want to look at something here. We actually read this last night in our family devotions. Thomas picked it out. Pick out something, whatever you want to do. And he led our devotions last night. And this just struck me. I hope it strikes us tonight. But basically what we're going to see here in Isaiah 40 is God says, I'm the God, the creator of the universe. This is how big I am. And how can you compare me to an idol? I'm summarizing what we're going to read. How can you compare me to some idol? I'm the God that created all things. Everything else is as nothing and if you think your desperate situation I can't handle, just look unto me and I'll, I'll handle it. I'm big enough. I will. So look in verse 10, Isaiah 40. It says, Behold, the Lord God will come with a strong hand. There's a word for somebody in a trial tonight. The Lord will come with a strong hand. His arm shall rule for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his work before him. He shall feed his flock like a shepherd. He shall gather the lambs with his arm and carry them in his bosom and shall gently lead those that are with young. And here he says, this is how great this God is that will come. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? He's talking about all the oceans that we can't hardly swim across a couple miles. And he's saying, I can hold all of that in the palm of my hand. Who's meted out heaven with a span. He's talking about the stars, the heavens with a span. That means it's from the tip of your thumb to your little finger. That's a span. He's saying, then your span, that is my span. I can have the whole universe in that. And we've never seen the end of it yet. <laughs> Go to the Creation Museum and you'll see how wonderful that is. And I comprehend, I weigh the dust of the earth in a bag. The dust of the earth in a bag. And weigh the mountains, a whole mountain. I just put them in my scales. And the hills in a balance. And he goes on to say, this great God who's directed the spirit of the Lord or been his counselor and taught him. And with whom took he counsel? Or who instructed him and taught him in the path of judgment? Taught him knowledge. Showed to him the way of understanding He's like, it's nobody in the world because verse, verse 15, he says, the seven billion people on this earth, the, behold, he says, the nations, the seven billion people to him, they're like a drop of a bucket and are counted as the small dust of the balance. Behold, he takes up the very isles as a very little thing. And Lebanon is not sufficient to burn, nor the beast thereof sufficient for a burnt offering. He says, all nations, everybody gathered before me are as literally nothing and they are counted to him less than nothing and vanity or worthless. Isaiah says, well, then to who then will you liken God or what likeness will you compare him unto him? He's saying, are you going to go on? He says, are you going to go on and make an image of this God? How could you do that? Look, verse 19, he says, the workman makes a graven image 
and the goldsmith spreads it over with gold and casteth silver chains. He that is so impoverished that he has no oblation chooses a tree that will not rot. He seeks unto him a cunning workman to prepare a graven image that shall not be moved. And God's answer to that is, are you crazy? Look at verse 21. He says, have you not known? Have you not heard? Has it been hid from you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundation of the world? He's saying, don't you know who I am? Can't you look at this creation and see how great a God I must be, is what he's saying? Verse 22 is, it is he that sits upon the circle of the earth and the inhabitants thereof. They're like grasshoppers. It stretches out the heavens as a curtain and spreads them out as a tent to dwell in. That bringeth the princes to nothing. He makes the judges of the earth as vanity. Yea, they shall not be planted. Yea, they shall not be sown. Yea, their stocks shall not take root in the earth. And he shall also blow upon them and they shall wither in the whirlwind shall take them away as stubble. He goes on to say it again. Well, to whom then I'm so, are you going to liken me? Or shall I be equal, saith the Holy One? And he tells the people, lift up your eyes on high. Look up into the sky at night. And behold, who has created these things that bring out their host by number? The stars, he's saying. He calls them all by names, by the greatness of his might. For he that is strong in power, not one faileth. And here's verse 27. He says, so why do you say, O Jacob, O people of Shelbyville, why do you speak and say that my way, this great God that we've just described, how can you say, he's saying, that your way is hid from the Lord and your trouble, your judgment is passed over from your God? Why would God, God's people, he said, ever say that this great God is not paying attention to their trouble? Why would you ever say that? And that he couldn't handle it. That he's passing over like he can't take care of you. That's the question he's asking there. And he brings up again in verse 28 to his people what he asked the heathens in verse 21. The same thing. My people, he's saying, have you not known? Have you not heard that the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, he faints not at your trouble. Neither is he weary. He's right there. There is no searching of his understanding. And here's what he'll do for us. He gives power to the faint. And to them that have no might, he increases strength. Even the youth shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fail. But us, they that wait upon the Lord, shall do what? Renew their strength. They'll mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary, and they shall walk and not faint. Man, that's the God of the universe is saying. Whatever your trouble is, I will be able to take care of you. The almighty, everlasting Lord, the creator of the heavens and earth, and watching out for you. I'll give you whatever it is you need. Power, strength, faith, deliverance, whatever it is you need. And I'm saying we need to pray, as we talked about a little while back, to have our understanding open and experience the fact that our Lord Jesus Christ, as what we're seeing here in these scriptures, as this study of Mark, is sufficient for everything we need. This heathen, pagan woman that didn't have the scriptures, she got it. She got what his disciples couldn't get. Her heart was open to understand what it says their hearts were hardened in unbelief. 
That's what's going on here. She knew his power was more than sufficient to meet her need, and it was a desperate need. No other power could help her. But she knew he could do, as the song says, what no other power could do. She saw what another pagan saw, the centurion, that all power and might was given to the Lord Jesus Christ under heaven and earth. If he would just say his word, his power would be manifested and the trial would be over. And I'm saying, haven't we experienced that here? People that have trusted the Lord in our trials and through the years. Haven't we seen that in our walk with the Lord? That when we have pressed through and answered a prayer, all it took was a word from the Lord Jesus Christ and everything changed. Have you not experienced that, people? I know we have. I know we have in here, right? Just a word. Holding on to that promise, as we said, knowing that we've prayed according to the will of God. Holding on to that, and that channel is open. It's just a matter of when, not if, His power comes to change whatever it is we're trusting Him for. Deliverance, whether it's deliverance, you're being oppressed by a spirit, it will happen. Healing, sovereignly moving in circumstances that we need Him to. He will do that, changing hearts, giving us peace. The Lord Jesus Christ, I'm saying, I'm saying through this right here is all we need. Isn't that the song we sing? He's all I need. Or the song, How Great Is Our God. I love this song, How Great Is His Name. He's the greatest one, forever the same. He rolled back the water of the mighty Red Sea. And He says to us, I will lead you. Just put your trust in me. How great is our God? He rolled back the mighty Red Sea. He can do anything. That's it. And so when we put our trust in the Lord, though, the third thing we want to see, many times it brings us into my third point, and that is the humility of faith. Go hand in hand. So like I said earlier, this woman, this Greek, she would have been from a wealthy Greek family. The Greeks are the ones that ruled Syrophoenicia. She'd have been from a proud family. So we've been in Matthew. If you would go to Mark now, Mark 7. So she's a proud Greek woman, more than likely. And he talks to her in a way that would have stepped all over her toes. And when you look at verse 27, it says, But Jesus said unto her, Let the children first be filled, for it's not suitable or meat to take the children's bread and to cast it to dogs. So as you know, Maybe you don't know. There's two words for dogs in Greek, and one is for the unkempt, wild street dogs, and one is for the smaller housebred dogs that would have lived in the house. And he uses the one for the smaller dog, the small house dog, but the point is a dog is a dog. <laughs> Whether you're talking about a poodle or a Rottweiler, in my book, a dog is a dog. And dogs weren't really appreciated much in Israel at that time. Because in that day, what we've got here is Jesus is contrasting the children of Israel, the children of the Jews. They considered themselves to be the children of God. It says that in Deuteronomy 14.1. You are the children of the Lord your God, Deuteronomy 14.1. And they considered the Gentiles to be unregenerate dogs. That's the way they looked at them. And especially... Anybody from where this woman's from, Tyre. Josephus, many of you know who he is, famous Jewish historian. He said that the people from Tyre were the Jews' bitterest enemies. 
because they were taking all their food. That's what was going on there, getting their grain from them. Now here's what you need to do, though. You've got to look at this story from the woman's perspective. Put yourself in this woman's shoes. Because first of all, she's from a proud family, a wealthy family, and the Jews and the Syrophoenicians, they didn't get along at all. And she has to come and lower herself to find this Jew, find out where he's at in her Gentile homeland. And then she does that, and she asks him for help probably nicely. And what does he do? He treats her like as rude as it gets. He just ignores her. Like I said, think about it. If somebody ignores you, I mean, that's just pretty offensive. And a lot of people, that been, well, if he's going to be like that, I'm out of here. Isn't that the way a lot of people would be? Ah, and she just raises her voice more, cries out repeatedly, and then she's got the disciples after. Just, would you just send her away, Jesus, please? So now it's 13 against one. Twelve of them and Jesus, and he goes on and Jesus insults her further by reminding her that he's only sent to the lost house of Israel. And I'm telling you, hearing those words, honestly, you put yourself there. You're coming to him for help. You've got a desperate situation. You're crying out, I need mercy. You know other people around there have gotten it, and this guy won't, won't look at you. And the first thing he says then is to remind you, I'm not sent to you Gentiles. Uh, honestly, most people would have just taken that as, okay, I know a no one, I hear one. I'm out of here. Wouldn't you? Honestly, I never, I, that's probably what I would have done. But instead, it says she responds and runs to his feet and yet says, Lord, help me. That's pretty humiliating already, isn't it? But Jesus wasn't done. He's still going to take her further down that path. And he reminds her that the Jews are God's chosen people, his children, and they've got priorities over the Gentiles. And you Gentiles, you're just going to have to wait. He says, first, the children have to be filled. The same word when it was talked about with the bread. They had to be filled. He says it's not right to give their bread to dogs like you that was intended for the Jews first. She's got to hear that. But think about it. Put yourself in her shoes. That is pretty humiliating. So here's what she had to do. This is the humility she had. She accepted what Jesus said about her. She's like, I, I'm, I'm good with that, Lord. I understand what you're saying. The Jews are the apple of God's eye first. And I'm a cultured woman, but I'm a dog. I'll take that. She's saying, I'll take that. Look at her answer, verse 28 in Mark. She says, she answered unto him, yes, Lord, yet. She says, I agree with everything you're saying, yet. Let me just add this. The dogs under the table eat of the children's crumbs. I'll, I'll go along with every one thing you say, but just let me add a little something to your example, to your little bit of parable there, right? Even the dogs, they don't have to wait until later to eat. At least they get the crumbs. They don't have to wait later to be fed. And she says, I'll take the position of a dog. That's fine. Call me whatever you want to. I'm giving up my pride. I just need what you have. The humility of faith is what's happening here. And so Jesus, many times, what's he doing? He's just putting stumbling blocks in front of her, right? To see if that's enough to get her to quit. And he did that constantly with people. He'd call them hypocrites, sinners, faithless, perverse, an evil generation. I mean, how'd you like to call you faithless and perverse? That's pretty rough language. But that's what Jesus would do. And he's saying, hey, you got to deal with these stumbling blocks, people, if you want to receive something from me, if you want to get my help. 
And that's what he did here. He put stumbling blocks and roadblock after roadblock in front of this woman. Why? To test her faith and her humility. Because I'm saying faith and humility go hand in hand. And she overcame every one. And I'm telling you, I could picture when she overcomes that last one with that answer, that I could see Jesus finally breaks out into a big smile. Because in Matthew's account, he says, oh, woman. I'm sure he said it that way. Oh, woman, great is thy faith. Be it unto thee even as you will. The test is over. You passed it. Oh, woman, you're quite a woman. Great is your faith. Megale supistis is what the Greek is. You don't have this small, puny faith I'm finding other places. You've got mega faith. That's where we got our word mega from, the Greek word great faith, like the centurion. And you have a humility. Only God's grace could give you that humility you've got. But it stood the test that I put in front of you. I'm saying, you know what we have here? You look, so you want to understand things. You need to remember this when you're reading your Bible. You put everything in context. And what's the context of what we're reading here? What did we just read about before? The beginning of chapter 7. Jesus is saying, you guys look at everything on the outside. And you say, oh, it's unclean. And we can't have that. And she would have been considered unclean. Totally unclean. A woman, a Greek, a Gentile. The Pharisees would have had nothing to do with that woman based on her outward circumstances. They just said she's unclean because of what she was outwardly. And that's a lesson we all have to learn. God's not concerned with the outward look in that sense. Peter had to learn that with that vision of Cornelius. He would never have gone into his house. He would have considered him unclean. And God says, no longer is it that way because I'm looking at men's hearts. That's what Jesus is saying. Isn't that what we read and talked about last week? He says, you all look on the outward. He said, but God is concerned with the heart. And look, he looks at her heart and he says, I don't see here in this woman this heart that is full of pride and unbelief, but I see in this woman a heart that I'm after, one of a contrite heart, one of humility and faith. She's not a hypocrite we're seeing here. He goes up into unclean territory where the Pharisees wouldn't go, and this is faith unfeigned that the Bible talks about, sincere faith. Because she's not like the Pharisees where they appear to love and honor and trust the Lord, but they don't. Not really, but no. Outwardly, she's an outcast, but inside she has a sincere, humble love and faith for God. And that's what the picture that we're getting here with this woman. Oh, woman, he says, you have a great sincere faith. Great is thy faith. Be it unto thee, even as thou wilt. I tested your sincerity. I tested what you were saying, and you did not come up wanting. You passed the test. That's what he's telling her. So pride will keep us many times, is the last point, from trusting God. Dwight Moody said this, Jesus sent no one away empty except those who were full of themselves. Jesus sent no one away empty except those who were full of themselves. So how many times have we heard the story of Naaman, the leper, right? Until he was willing to let go of his pride, he wasn't going to get anything, right? And he had to just let that go. 
And in obedience, go wash in that dirty river Jordan, in obedience to what the Lord asked him to do. And so pride will many times keep us from stepping out in faith and receiving a blessing from God or being, I would say this is just as important tonight, being a blessing to others. Stepping out in faith because how many times I've had people that'll come up and they'll say, and I don't mean this critically, it's fine, I understand we've all done this, I'm, not, I'm just trying to make a point, but God gave me a scripture to share. I know it was him. Oh, I went right along with your message, but I, I didn't do it, I chickened out. I'm like, well, that's fine, just next time, don't be such a chicken. But I'm saying, it's what is that? It's just pride, right? You think about it, you got to just swallow that pride and get over it and share that scripture or step out in that gift of the Spirit. Nobody's going to be hypercritical. You know, you, you do it a dozen times and you might, somebody might talk to you. But look, you're just sincerely, you just got to step out and trust the Lord. If you're doing it out of a sincere heart, hey, if it's God, we'll all be blessed. That's just what it takes. You got to get out of that boat sometimes or just we're having a prayer meeting, whether it's here or someone else. And I do would like to have we got prayer meeting tomorrow night, Thursday. Love for everybody to come get my plug in there. Right. But you won't pray out loud at prayer meeting. Why is that? It's a place to pray. There's nobody going to think anything when you're praying at prayer meeting, wherever that prayer meeting you're having is at. Right. Or you're walking out of trial. A lot of times pride enters in, doesn't it? You know, Brother Hampton, you always always do that, you know. (laughs) But that's what he's getting the point across to where who wants to be the idiot that you know you could easily get help from man and you're an idiot. You look like an idiot. Well, you know, sometimes you got to make your choice. I'm going to trust the Lord and look like an idiot and have the benefit of seeing his faithfulness to me or worry about what people think and go some other route. I mean, that's sometimes what it's all about. Or what about Asking somebody for forgiveness. Could that keep you from exercising your faith? Because here's the thing, if you need to do that and you won't humble yourself and ask for forgiveness, your faith is not going to work. Your pride's going to totally short circuit you. And if you would turn to, you know, we're here, what, in Mark 8? Just turn a few chapters over in Mark 11. And we'll see what it says there. Mark 11, look at verses 22 to 25. Jesus answering the great faith verses here. Mark eleven twenty two. he said unto them, Have faith in God, for truly I say unto you, that whosoever shall say unto this mountain, Be thou removed, and be thou cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe that those things which he saith shall come to pass. He says, He'll have whatsoever he saith. Therefore, Jesus said, I say unto you, What things soever you desire, when you pray, believe that you receive them, and you shall have them. Amen. But look at verse 25. He says, but when you stand praying, you need to do what? Forgive. Forgive. Thank you, Mr. Rudy. If you have aught against any, that your Father also which is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father which is in heaven forgive you your trespasses. So pride is what keeps us many times for asking for forgiveness when we need to, doesn't it? But you do that, it's going to keep your faith from operating too. So quiet in here for? Did I say something? Was that heresy? I hope not. Well, that's the way it is. Peter says this, Likewise, you husbands, dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers, he says, be not hindered. 
So husband and wives, that's something to think about. They need to maintain peaceful relationships, if I can say it that way. <laughs> Forgive and ask for forgiveness. So that if a trial comes up in your family, you're ready to face it together in prayer. Or if you're in a trial, you need to make sure you're keeping things at peace between you and your wife, whatever it takes, so that God can bless that your prayers be not hindered. So God has a goal in giving us His commandments to obey, we're saying. That humility. He wants our faith and our hearts to be genuine. 1 Peter 1.5 says, Now the end or goal of the commandment is love from a pure heart and of a good conscience and of faith un." feigned or a sincere faith. So God has a goal for us and that is for us as a church, as individuals to have a sincere faith. And that's what trials will do for us. They'll prove to us and they'll prove to the world that our faith, just like we saw here with the Syrophoenician woman, that's what those trials will do. They'll prove your faith is sincere and unfeigned, right? Jesus put her through the ringer so to speak, wrestled with her and humbled her pride, and she came through with flying colors and a proved heart. Amen? Amen. So he seemed out of character, but we need to remember, to, to say this last, that God does love us, and it may appear at times, like with this woman, that testing that he put her through, it seemed out of character, didn't it? It didn't seem like he was showing her compassion, but really he was. And I guarantee you, like I said, I guarantee you, he gave her a big smile at the end. Sometimes his testing seems severe till we get on the other side. You hang in there, you get on the other side, and you'll be like, man, that was the most loving thing, God, you could have ever done to me is to put me through that, as bad as it seemed at the time. And he has his hand on us, and he will perfect that which he started. Amen? And Psalm 34, we'll end with this, says this. We sing this song. I will bless the Lord at all times, and his praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul will make her boast in the Lord. And the humble, they'll hear thereof, the humble will hear thereof, and they'll be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt his name together. For I sought the Lord, and he heard me, and delivered me from all of my desperate fears. Amen? Amen. That's our God. Amen. Well, stand to your feet. Praise the Lord. Heavenly Father, we just thank you once again for your word and that we can see that the Lord Jesus Christ, Lord, we may go through severe trials. It may seem like he's not coming to our aid, ignoring us, or even telling us to leave him alone, but that's not the case. He's just testing the sincerity and the humility of our faith. I just ask you, Lord, that you'll cause us in our desperation to not let go of you, that we can keep our hands on the horns of the altar on the feet of Jesus and to just trust him and press in and not to take no for an answer that you are faithful and you will bless us, your children. And I thank you that you'll do that for us and show us that in Jesus' name. Amen.